Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where the personal, professional, and political intersect. Each week, we discuss a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. On today's episode, we have a featured conversation with music industry executive and proud Canadian lawyer Erica Savage. We'll ask Erica about innovation and blazing new trails. I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hello, Darlene. Hello. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm excited yeah. for today. I'm very excited. I was thinking as we prepared for this podcast, uh, I I would never get to speak to the caliber, <laughs> certainly, and and level and people with the level of experience uh, that that I do, but for this podcast so regularly. So I'm very grateful, and and today's a an exciting day for that. Very exciting. Why don't you go ahead and do the introduction, and then I can uh, add some commentary after. Okay, we're gonna get right into it. Okay. Named one of the most powerful executives in the industry by Billboard Magazine's 2018 Women in Music issue, Erica Savage is a trailblazer in the music industry. She has helped build the careers of the biggest artists that populate our playlists, from Lady Gaga to Snoop Dogg, and she's co-founded the female-focused FemFat Entertainment Group that produces the Honey Jam show annually here in Toronto. She's a lawyer holding a JD from Osgoode Hall and a BA from the University of Toronto and a proud Albertan that started her legal career here in Canada. And today we will learn about Erica's trailblazed path and benefit from the lessons that she's learned along the way. So with that, we'd like to say hey to Erica. Hi, guys. Hello. Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It is so awesome to have you. We, uh, when we started this podcast, just to give you a bit of background, we had as one of our objectives, obviously the, the overarching objective is to help lawyers navigate their day with a little less stress and more fulfillment. And we always said that our goal was to have guests on who are lawyers, but are doing extremely interesting things with their law degree and have a courageous path, right? You, I think one of the things we want to talk you through today is how did you how did you have the confidence to know that you would leave law school and end up in in this amazing space? So let let's start there. You uh, you went to law school. When did you know that you were going to be a music lawyer? It's actually interesting because I I started at Osgood having no idea that there was something called a music lawyer. I did not know that. So I had two very different parts of myself. I would say I had my academic, um, you know, self who decided that I wanted to go to law school. And then I had my music industry self who had been, I'd basically been working kind of early on doing like rave promotion in Calgary when I was growing up. I'd been DJing a little bit and I'd always been dancing. So music and dance was like a really big part of sort of my artistic life. And I guess I would say, you know, my what really made me happy. And when I moved to Toronto to go to undergrad, I started getting more involved in, you know, music, promoting concerts, and and also in dance. And I became a hip hop dancer um, in the early 90s before I went to law school. So I had a, I was not a typical law student, let's put it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. My my BA was in political science, but I had really discovered women's studies when I was at undergrad at U of T. And I went into law school thinking that I was going to do like feminist legal theory, maybe be a law professor, a feminist legal theorist. I had no idea music law existed. 
So I was working with FemFat, um, doing things like DJ showcases, and I was actually representing I started a dance agency with an amazing woman named Jay Blaze, who's currently running an incredible, um, she has a Blaze dance agency. So I started doing hip hop choreography and working with dancers and representing dancers. So I was doing all that kind of stuff on the side while I decided to go to law school. And it was pretty, it was pretty funny. Like there were definitely days when I think about it, where I showed up at law school and I had no idea like what I was getting myself into in terms of like the regiment of it. So different from undergrad. And I was working, you know, at different clubs as a dancer. Like I did fluid on Wednesday nights. And then I would go to my one entertainment law class that at the time, I don't know if it's different now. It was called Entertainment Law. And it was at eight o'clock in the morning on Thursday. Oh my God. So this was what I was dealing with um, kind of a strange double life. And then a crazy thing happened, which is I showed up one day. Because at lunch in at Osgood they had a entertainment law society like lunch you know bring your lunch and listen to speakers and at the time the entertainment law society was really not a welcoming place because it was mostly people who wanted to be hockey agents right. which when I tell people in America this they're like what is that like they think that's really funny and I love hockey grew up as a big Calgary Flames fan, but I did not need to hear people talk about hockey any more than I had already heard. So I showed up to this um, like entertainment law society thing, not really thinking it was going to be that interesting to me. And in walked Cindy Zaplachinsky, who is a dear friend um, working right now in New York at Universal Music Group. She was working at Universal Music Canada and she walked in and she had this cool like baseball style leather jacket with the globe on the back and when I realized that she worked at a record company it kind of was one of those moments where I was like wait a minute you can do that like it had never occurred to me you could be a music lawyer that you could work at a record company the idea that artists needed lawyers to represent them had never occurred to me so um, all of that opened like a huge uh, door for me of realizing that I could combine two things together that I loved, which was music and the law. And that's when I started thinking about how do I become a music lawyer? Very long answer to your question. Well, it's it's good. That's, that's what people need to hear because I think it's so, uh, we go into law school the first day and one of the things we talk a lot about on the podcast is that sometimes the assumption is you have to park your old self at the door, park your interests at the door and suddenly transform into this new you know, fully baked, risk averse, um, suited lawyer person. And so what you're effectively saying is you have this aha moment where you realize that your whole self might be useful to you in your career. Yeah. And I think that it's actually been, it was interesting because I think it was not, it was not easy. Um, there were scary moments when I, when I graduated from Osgood, I did not have a job because I wanted to get a music job. And a lot of my friends had gone to big firms. So it wasn't just this really um, graceful, elegant maneuver. I had to keep looking for music jobs. And I think that in the end, the reason I was able to get one was the fact that I had actual real world experience and could sh like had a proven track record of somebody who had worked with artists and, you know, had 
you know, worked on video sets and like put on live shows and done real, um, put, put in time and like definitely have had so many interviews over the years with young people who say, you know, who interview and, and, and you're, you're the person interviewing and the answer is always like, I love music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, you know, which people do. And I'm sure the person, you know, many of the people trying to get into the music business do love music, but I do think it distinguished. I think my resume definitely did have, um, an element of being able to stand out because of that real world experience um, in the business. You know, going back to what you, what you mentioned about, you didn't have, you know, a job straight out um, because you didn't take the traditional path. Can you just walk us through, you know, how, how you dealt with that? And then also how you had faith that like looking at a relatively intimidating industry, like entertainment can be, how did how did you, you know, end up getting to the place where you were hopeful to get? Yeah, I think a lot of um, a lot of different crazy things came together. But at the end of the day, um, you hear a lot about people needing to come into situations like so. For me, um, my first job really after the call to the bar was was becoming manager of business affairs at Universal Music in Toronto, and I would not have had. The ability to get that job if I hadn't done a couple of things. One of which was when I was in that entertainment law class that I was referencing, I wrote a paper and I wrote a paper about the role of women in hip hop and R&B in Canada. And all my friends told me I was going to fail the class. 100% paper, right? Class, right? Like, you know, 100% of your mark is on your paper. And people were like, you're nuts. Like you have to write a paper about hockey. If you don't write a paper about (laughs) hockey, you're going to fail this class. And um, I just was like, I can't. Guys, I just can't do it. I cannot write a paper about hockey. So I wrote this paper where I talked about, you know, me, she, me, and like, um, you know, FemFat and what Ebony Rowe, who is the founder of FemFat, had been doing and, you know, Julie Black and like how important these women, basically like what the women in the music industry in Canada and urban music were bringing to the table and the importance of like the role of women in urban music. So again, I kind of went back to my women's studies background and people were like, you're going to get killed. Like you're going to fail this class. And I handed it in. And it was just one of those crazy things where it ended up being the, the, because my professor was a hockey agent, he didn't mark my paper because he went, I don't know anything about this. I have no idea about it. So he gave my paper. Unbeknownst to me, there was like a guest professor marking my paper. That person ended up being Graham Henderson. And he gave me an A. He might have given me an A plus. I'm not sure, but it was definitely an A or an A plus. And uh, I didn't know even really know who Graham was at the time. I think I found out later because he became my boss, right? So he ended up hiring me for that job at the end of the day. Um, um, and so he understood sort of who I was and where I came from. He um, also said, "Look, uh, first job I had was like." a contract position where he said, Erica, I don't know if I can get you to a full-time position. I don't have the headcount right now to do that, but I really want to bring you in. So are you willing to do a contract? And it's a, it's a funny project when you look back on what, why I was hired, because I got hired to look at every record contract in the cupboard, because we had file cabinets, right, in those days. Every single recording contract with every Canadian artist to make a chart as to whether or not we had what was referred to as like digital rights. Like, did we have the right to sell their music digitally? 
And it seems hilarious now because I think my chart after, and I was like a six month contract. I think my chart got thrown in the garbage. Like nobody ever looked at it. It didn't really matter because we all as an industry around the world decided that the words in any matter, in any media now or hereafter known, basically, which was in every recording contract, gave every record company the right to exploit music digitally from CD to digital. Um, so my chart, which was awesome and very well executed, was like a piece of garbage like thrown into a shredding machine. But what it did was it allowed me, can you imagine, to see every single recording contract and study every single recording contract. So it's like the most amazing first project. So I got to, to really study whether it was, you know, Tragically Hip, Jan Arden, you know, all these incredible artists. I was holding their recording contracts and I was reading them. And I was able to understand like how maybe Polygram had a different form than A&M had a different form from, you know, the various labels. So I learned a lot and it was really invaluable. And what's so interesting is that as we talk about finding your authentic path, um, so many people say to me, my background also is music, as people probably know. Um, a lot of times people say, well, how did you, how did you execute that with, you know, planning and strategy? But, you know, what I often say is you do the right thing and the results come and your story really validates that actually, because there are always these people saying, oh, no, 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 that'll never happen. You know, oh, no, you can't write a paper about women in hip hop. You need to write about hockey. Um, the fact that you wrote that paper led to Graham, led to Universal. It's that, I'm not saying it's simple because it's not. Um, it's just not knowable. You know, like it's not predictable yeah. what can happen. It's not like you do this and you get that. But it's kind of more, I mean, the funny thing about our world is that the very idea of you writing a paper on hockey is so funny to me and would seem like such a waste, um, not because you don't have like solid Calgary hockey credentials, but just because it's not, it would seem false, you know? And the, the fact, I think that it's so interesting that you brought that up because at law school, there's all these voices kind of pushing people um, to do things that are inauthentic under the guise of that's what's going to get you the mark, that's what's going to get you the job. And as we sit here today, you know, um, you've been practicing in the industry for a very long time. You've had the opportunity to do some truly extraordinary things, be there for um, the beginning of huge careers like Lady Gaga's. I mean, in my own world, you were there. You're the one who explained to me what, what a ringtone was, um, I remember, back in the day. And it's, it's inspiring to see women inside the industry getting to pretty much the very top. I mean, you, you've most recently been at Interscope Records, which is sort of, I think, one of the top labels in the world, certainly one that has put out a ton of music that I love. And to just have that, like, I, I feel like having you on this podcast is so important just to show people what's possible. I mean, you're from Calgary, Alberta. You came to Toronto. You ended up in LA. You've lived there for a long time. Um, and you're pretty much at the pinnacle. Your sister is also in the entertainment industry and more on the TV side. How can you tell us a little bit about, like, was her career in, in TV and something you can talk about, was that inspiring to you? Did that sort of make it possible for you to believe that you could do these things too? Yeah, yes. Yes, I think for sure. Um, I'm I'm four years younger than my sister, and I really haven't had a very original thought because I really followed her to Toronto. 
um, she had, she had gone to grad school when I arrived. Um, so she had just left. So we weren't at university of Toronto together, but it wasn't very original. It was like, I actually went and lived in the same residence, which was Tattle Creek, um, at Innes College because I had seen my sister go there, stay there. And then she went to grad school in Iowa while I was in university of Toronto. And I think, you know, she really thought she was going to be a professor, um, a film, film theory professor. And she was pursuing her PhD. So she was very much, um, like giving me that academic kind of, um, model of like, you can, you can work hard, be smart, have really interesting ideas and kind of pursue your dreams that way. And she's an incredible writer. But I think in terms of looking at what my sister did, she also kind of took a turn because she was doing her um, PhD studies in Iowa, a very prestigious program. And she went to LA um, to work on her dissertation. And while she was doing research in LA, she ended up um, interviewing to be a script reader which, you know, she didn't know what a script reader was. She read an ad in the back of a trade magazine while she was in L.A. that said script reader needed. And she's like, well, I'm, an, I'm a Ph.D. student, so I know how to read and I could probably read scripts. So she, uh, she showed up um, for this interview and it was Drew Barrymore, you know, interviewing her for a job um, as a script reader. And Drew Barrymore started her own company called Flower Films. She was one of the earliest actresses, actor um, talent really to create their own production company because it's very common now, but it was, it was very, it was really, she was one of the first um, mm -hmm. actors to try to say, Hey, I want to control my career by really having my own company and developing my own projects. So my sister started working. She was one of the first three employees of Flower Films. Um, and that's how my sister's path. She ended up not finishing her dissertation. Um, and I, I don't think she regrets that decision because she never left L.A. And she's been incredibly successful film and TV um, writing and producing and being a showrunner. So then I ended up in L.A. So, again, not very um, original. I just followed my sister. <laughs> Again, <laughs> it's always interesting because even on this podcast, I've learned so much about your story that speaks to me and I didn't know. Um, but in doing the research, I went, uh, I found an article about how you and your sister had like a skateboard ramp in Calgary, uh, just outside Calgary, when you were younger. And it, I was very struck in that in that portrayal about how you guys have always been very authentic. You know, so it sounds on this podcast like oh, maybe one could chalk it up to luck, right? That Graham Henderson, who's now the head of the Recording Industry um, Association here in Canada, um, he maybe it's luck that he got a hold of your paper. Um, maybe it's luck that she answers an ad and it's Drew Barrymore. But I do think there's something to be said for just continuously doing authentic things for the reasons that you believe in them. And they have these, like I said, un unpredictable um, outcomes. I, th I think it's a lot of pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, like, I think a lot of the good things, most of the good things that have come in my career, and I think my sister would, would say the same thing for her, is just that um, having that faith in yourself, that belief in yourself to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. And it's hard. It's, it's easier sometimes to just try to say something's working. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm fine doing this because it's going to be, it's going to be fine. It's going to, it's going to be a result that, that works, but it's like always kind of wanting to push the envelope and see what could be next. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, my sister and I are super close and I think there is definitely an, an, for me, like I would have, there was an opportunity to take a job in New York at one of the Universal Music Group labels in New York. And I interviewed for it when I was in Toronto, I went to New York and interviewed and the senior, you know, head of the department, the, the head lawyer of that, of that business affairs department at the time was so sweet. He said to me, do you have any family in New York? And I said, no, my sister lives in LA. And he was, he said, you might want to think about going to LA because it's a tough, it's, you know, it's a tough city to crack. I don't, I don't think that I could, could have, you know, I would have, had I chosen to go to New York, I think I probably would have been able to like survive New York and make it. But there is something to, um, you know, the fact that like, I, I did make a decision to say that like my sister and I are close and I wanted to spend time in a city where she is and it, it inspired me that she was able to like come here and um, started realizing that like the, the center of what was happening in my work life in my company was happening in LA. So um, that was a huge draw, the idea that my sister's here and that's where the headquarters of our company is. Um, it just made sense for me personally to try to make my way to LA, which I did. The so when you get to LA and you know I'm I'm sure that you continue to do as you've said like content you know push yourself out of your comfort zone and you know uh, as you progress your career I think that happens to us all where you know a new issue or uh, a negotiation or something lands on your desk that you haven't done before uh, and especially you know the kind of stakes that you were dealing with what was and I guess maybe what still is what what's your manner of dealing with those things that you know do cause you to to push yourself a bit further than you've been before. Well, I think you have to just jump in and really try to think about what you want next. So for me, moving here, um, I was kind of at a stage where I thought, you know, I've kind of done everything that I can do here. I also discovered at that point that I was working more in an entrepreneurial capacity because the digital marketplace would really just, just started. At that time, my job became much less about drafting contracts in a traditional um, business affairs um, framework and much more about going out and meeting with the telephone carriers, meeting with, you know, the different media companies and different media platforms um, and figuring out how we were going to try to do those deals. And so it, it became clear to me that I really enjoyed that much more. So I, my skill set where I wanted to push myself was more interpersonal leadership, um, entrepreneurial, how do we um, execute together? So you learn, you learn what you love. And I think um, I started looking to like, what were the things that I wanted to try to do? And where did I see myself able to, to be? And I think that it's like, you know, you talked about the skateboard ramp that I had in Calgary with my sister at our house where we were growing up. Um, I think it's like from back in those days, it was like, okay, there's a ramp and the city of Calgary has made a law that you can't have skateboard ramps in backyards in the city. So the ramp that we had was outside of the city limits. Um, I started seeing that like skateboarders like myself, because obviously once they, once I, once a skateboard ramp was built in my backyard, I became a skateboarder at that point and started, um, 
skating a lot and got really active in in I was um the president of the Calgary Skateboard Society in like whatever year that was um and that hadn't existed before so it was sort of like pushing myself again like what can I do to fix a problem or how can I um figure something out here to do so the city of Calgary had to deal with like this 14 year old girl who incorporated the Calgary Skateboard Society. I have my articles of incorporation oh document from when I was 14. So it's like, I love doing stuff like that. And then it became like, oh, there's a whole music subculture involved in skateboarding. We can put on, you know, punk shows and we can, you know, do that. So it, it's like, if I take back to being 14 and I come back to my age that I am now, there's a lot of similarities. And I think your personality is kind of your personality. Mm-hmm. And you kind of figure out like what, framework you're fitting that into but it was always about kind of like what can we do here this is something's not working or something's broken right you see a problem and I think that's something that a lot of lawyers have in common is problem solving right so like you see a problem you want to fix it and um how can you do that in like creative ways I think the more lawyers come into the profession with a diverse background I mean Mike has a background in television production um I have a not a creative background, but a record label background. And when we started this podcast, one of the reasons that we did it was that we thought that it would be important to the way we help our our creative clients who are building software or music or whatever whatever creative endeavor they're doing. We thought if we have put ourselves out there and tried doing something really uh, creative from a from a lawyerly perspective, we'll be better able to help them. And I think largely that's been true. What do you, do you think that's happening for you, Mike? I don't know. Totally. Yeah. I think it's, you know, uh, to be put in the position of, uh, I think of the one who is uh, trying something new and, you know, developing in our case, new content or, you know, in, in your case, Eric, I, I suppose, you know, strategy and, and where a, uh, you know, a musician's uh, career might go. It, it's, it makes you, I think build that muscle and flex that muscle instead of just being the advisor and the one who you know uh, identifies the risk and blah blah blah. It's a, it's a different skill set, and I'm happy that I'm trying to and and it, and it makes me satisfied too. Like it's fulfilling for me. So uh, in both those senses, I think it's helpful. Yeah, it builds all of our credibility as a profession too. To not be just focusing on exercising that good old no muscle. Um, and I've I've certainly worked on things with you, Erica, over the years, and my. You know, I think you are unusually um, positive and, you know, not risk averse in the way that you kind of have to be when forging new ground. So I wasn't surprised to hear you say that living outside your comfort zone is is a key. But do you have like a, an overarching philosophy? I guess, well, the last two questions we're going to ask are, you know, one, do you have a quote that kind of guides your day or, or like a mantra or something like that? Um, and do you, how do you keep yourself sane in this world of LA and high drama and uh, all of that stuff? (laughs) Um, do I have a quote? I don't really think I have a quote. I think, I think my mom has been, um, a really strong kind of force pushing my sister and I, in terms of like that, you know, she used to say like, which is it's not that catchy, but she used to say like, you know, own your, own your own money, you know, own your own power. And I think that financial independence for women is like, has been like a really like leading motivation for my sister and I of just like, 
we have been very focused on our education and then, you know, our work lives because we sort of saw our mom be a single mom and work really hard as a nurse and work shift. And like all of those things made a real impression on us of like, you want, you know, you work hard, but it's about like, you want to have a quality of life, but just making sure that like, we're just very focused on sort of like, financial security as being like kind of a very important like women's issue so we're we're I think that that's a strong thing that keeps us like motivated and you know from from looking and seeing like how hard our mom worked for us to be able to kind of like go out and achieve what we've been able to achieve and then I think in terms of sanity um that's partially like my family having a family life and I, I speak a lot on panels about, you know, work-life balance and, you know, women um, executives, how, how to manage. And I think it's really important to think about, like, how it's actually, I think of it as, it's not easy by any means, it's extremely difficult. But it is definitely, in my thinking, sort of a best of both worlds. Like, I have a lot of um, friends who, you know, didn't, you know, who decided when they have kids to stop working outside of the home. And then I have many friends who don't have kids who, you know, are very focused on their careers. And I think that there's no right answer, no wrong answer. But for me, what keeps me sane is the idea that, like, I love what I do. I am incredibly professionally fulfilled. But on a bad day, I still come home and have like a beautiful family with amazing, hilarious children who um, crack me up and make me smile and are ridiculous and silly. But then also I can have like a crazy day with my kids where like I'm up to my eyeballs and they're driving me bonkers. And then I can go and have a coffee at my desk and, you know, be really excited about what it is that I'm doing at work. And I feel really proud when, you know, my daughter will say, you know, like, you know, working, working with Gaga and having a daughter who's seven years old um, is an incredible Mm -hmm. thing because it just feels really um, like, um, it's like the best form of fulfillment to say that she's looking at me. I took her, I took her with me to New York for the women um, in billboard awards um, that happened in December. She came with me and I, I mean, that was just like a life highlight because she looked around that room and the, the screens had the pictures of the women who were being honored. So they would flip, you know, from picture to picture. So every once in a while, my picture would flip up there and she would like get all excited and point. And then she said, mommy, how come it's all women? (laughs) And it was so funny. It was like, if this is the only place in the world you will ever go where it's only women being honored at a music industry function. So like, that's great that you think that that's like the reality of life that only women are ever being honored at these types of events. So I just thought that was great. And, um, you know, she, she got to see, you know, that aspect of my life. So just being able to share that with her and have her be there um, and, and, you know, have Ariana Grande be in the same room with me, that that was pretty good for her. So it was really fun. And I think that's how I kind of keep saying because it, it, you can have a day where, you know, I always joke, I had this, I had this one day where like I closed a huge deal Um, and we were all celebrating, but I think I was like more excited that my daughter finally ate like both 
the white and the yolk of her egg for the first time. <laughs> and I just laughed because I was like, how kind of bizarre, right? Like the world is, but it's great. It's a great, it's a great thing. We do talk a lot about that on the podcast about how, um, it's it's useful when you have a demanding career to have a family that is just so you you unplug when you go home because it's just so different you know it is about the egg white and yeah. not the uh drama of management <laughs> and artist and all that stuff yeah i agree totally was she okay with the white or the yolk historically well, you know, she started getting in the only dipping into the yolk and not eating the white. And I do not allow that. I do not, I do allow, not that. allow that. So um, we got into kind of a thing about it. And then that morning she, like, surprised me by eating the whole thing. And I was very happy because I told her because, my, you know, my mom is from a farm, right? Grandma Rita is, like, a farm woman. And I was like, the chicken works hard to lay an egg. You don't eat half an egg. <laughs> Which I mean, vegan children they would just be horrified by this whole conversation. But don't don't my daughter doesn't know about veganism, so not we're yet. not going there. <clears throat> not yet. <laughs> I just want to say that I this has been so great, and I I hope that hearing you speak, um, and in all the future interviews that you give, if people follow what you're doing and just look back at the you know really. I think massive contributions that you've made and that um, just the kind of example that you're setting of being yourself in an industry where that is not always the easiest thing to do. Uh, very inspiring to, to everyone. And, and uh, I'm so thankful to you for your time on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So fun. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Erica. And so we are going to pause for one second and we'll be back uh, with our goods and gripes. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Inter Alia Law, experienced legal counsel when and where you need us. To learn more about Inter Alia, visit the website at spelled I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. Thank you. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support. Gripes are things that annoy us. Can I start with a with a good? Yes. Okay. So Darlene, I think specifically you might like this one. So I listened to this uh, other podcast called Sportsfeld, Toronto-based guys. Um, and it's like a, it's as it, as you think about it, it's like Seinfeld for sports. It's like the sports podcast about nothing. Basically, they just talk all over the place and they're fun and good guys. And oddly, they have started this kind of online poll that they've done on their Instagram. Uh, it's a bracket of the top big shiny tunes songs of all time. <laughs> and they are slowly going through a voting, a voting elimination process to get to the ultimate number one big shiny tunes song ever that uh, famous compilation set of albums that darlene i think you worked on in your early days of a career that are like you know part of the fabric of people in canada's childhood yes. uh, or like teenagehood or 20 hood whatever you say so yeah i think that's great uh, and really fun and uh, it's something that i'm watching closely there's hot debate fans of like silver chair are coming in hot upset that they lost wow. in the first round yeah <laughs> wow yeah. i'm gonna have to can i tune into that without following the sports part yeah it's on their instagram so just look at look up sports okay, yeah. on instagram and it's all on their stories so you vote 
through their their stories. Oh, yeah. yeah, fantastic! I'll definitely vote for. Uh, I think it was Big Shiny Tunes nine and ten. Yeah, yeah, I might be voting for one and two because those really were some outstanding albums. But uh, okay, that's a good one. Yeah. Should I go with my gripe and then we'll see Erica? We're putting you on the spot a little bit, but uh, my gripe is sparked by this podcast. My gripe is the people who say <laughs> you shouldn't do that or why are you doing that or whatever, whatever the negative feedback from well-meaning individuals. I just kind of, that that's a broad gripe. I think we should all accept the fact that what's good for one person is not good for the next person. And I'm going to try to teach my my son that and my daughter because uh, it's just something that happens all the time. We don't think about it. And then you hear a story like the one Erica told about how you, know, you get this feedback early in life. I just would like to get get rid of that as a gripe. Here, here. Uh, let's see. Do I have a good? Yes, here, here. Um, Erica, do you want to go with good or gripe? Your choice. Um. Well, I would love to go with good because I went to sleep last night. Um, my husband's away, so I was able to watch whatever I wanted on Netflix. So I watched the Amy oh, yeah, Schumer yeah. Um, Growing. Yes. And um, – I thought it was great. And then I went on, I guess a grape related is I went on Twitter, like as you do now after you watch something and people seemed quite negative about it. And that's a grape because I was like, wait, I, I don't know. I guess that's troll yeah. culture. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, I thought she, I thought she had become like, I thought it, the, the tone of it, like politically was really like bang on and great. And, um, I, I liked kind of like where she was going. I, I felt like sometimes in the past, I haven't always felt like her humor was like exactly my cup of tea, but like I was laugh. I almost spit my tea and you can appreciate <laughs> that. I drink tea every night, orange Pico tea every night before I go to bed, like a good Canadian, which it's impossible to get tea. We have to bring Tetley. It's a whole thing. My mom comes with tea because you can't get tea here, like wow. orange Pico, proper caffeinated tea. So I almost spit out, my tea while I was watching it by myself, um, enjoying uh, not having to like talk to my husband about whether we watch, you know, Ray Donovan <laughs> or some violent show that he wants to watch. Okay. It's that so good. That was a good. That is a good. And I've actually talked about that. And I was surprised with how funny I thought that that um, special was really snorting, laughing funny. But I also, <laughs> I gave the disclaimer to Mike uh, when we talked about it. I just said, you know, not, I would put an asterisk that probably not everyone would find it funny. So perhaps some Twitter trolls did not find it funny, but I agree with you that it was uh, a reflection of the moment that was kind of needed. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I think that that does it. Erica, thanks again so much for, uh, you know, giving us your time and, and walking us through your career path. Uh, and I think so many people will be inspired by it. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, I'm sure for many, you've been, uh, you know, the woman in the leather jacket with the earth. On the back, so. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Okay. Uh, I guess then we will talk soon. Talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.